Well, hello, and welcome to the RCC Podcast. We are so glad you chose to join us today. It is our hope that you are inspired, challenged, and learn something new. Enjoy the message. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9. Uh, We're in this series called You Are Not the King. And what we've been doing is studying the book of 1 Samuel from uh, the end to the beginning. And as we've done this, we've seen a character throughout most of it, a guy by the name of Saul, who's the first king of Israel. And if you've grown up in church culture at all, Saul gets a bad rap. Uh, He's known as the bad king. Saul's the bad one. David's the good one. And at the end of the story, we see Saul dead on a mountain, surrounded by his family, who's also dead. I mean, it's a tragic end to a tragic story. And uh, throughout the the last few weeks, as we've been moving our way backwards through the book, we've uh, seen Saul be a coward when it came to Goliath. We saw the deceitfulness of sin work its way into Saul's heart and uh, bring him down. We saw some rebellion and some disobedience. Uh, I mean, it hasn't been great for Saul. What we're going to look at today is the rise of Saul. I mean, he was the king of Israel at a time. We're going to see in the events of today that he was God's clearly chosen leader of Israel. And as we study three chapters today, 9, 10, and 11, uh, we will see Saul's rise, and, uh, and we'll learn some things about him, and we'll learn some things about ourselves, and ultimately we're going to see how we need a better king than what Saul was. He was the king for a moment, um, but it was just a moment to pass over to a better king, David. And so we're going to see that uh, throughout this story this morning. And so uh, as we always do, we'll try to pull out the wisdom that we see. But ultimately, we know that the Old Testament bears witness about Jesus. And so we want to see how Jesus is really written into the story. Chapter 9, verse 1. Before we hop into that, where we're at in the story, if we were moving from beginning to end, what has just happened before this uh, in chapter 8 is Israel has demanded a king. Uh, Samuel says, as God tells him, uh, it's okay, give him a king. And uh, this is the guy who it's going to be. Uh, And so that's what happens in chapter 8. Then you hop into chapter 9, and it's like a, a brand new story. And we get introduced to two new characters. Here's the first one. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Apiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And so we're introduced to this new guy. His name's Kish, and he's got a lot of money, apparently. But when that phrase, a man of great wealth, is used uh, in the Old Testament, it doesn't just mean financial. Uh, He does have great wealth, but it also means of great character, of great status, of great stature. So here is this guy who's kind of got it all together. Um, It's a good phrase to be known as a man of great wealth or great integrity. Uh, And so he is a good guy, and he's got a son. And look what it says about him. And he had a son whose name was Saul. He was a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. If there was an ancient people magazine, Saul wins sexiest man of the year. And so if you need to picture Saul in 2019 or 18, you need to picture Idris Elba. Okay, he won this year. And so that's Saul. It says that he, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Reads weird in English. It doesn't mean he had a very long head and neck, okay? It means he was a head taller than everybody else. And so here you have a wealthy, 
powerful man who has a handsome, good-looking son who's real tall. Then what happens next? Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkey. So uh, dad gives the sign a mission to go find some lost donkeys. So it is true to say that the first time we see the king of Israel, or the future king of Israel, he is out chasing some donkeys, okay? And so as Saul is running around chasing after some donkeys, uh, he shows up at different towns where he thinks they might be, and they're nowhere to be found, He goes to place one, can't find him, place two, can't find him, place three, can't find him. So Saul has an idea. Here's the idea. When they come to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and he become anxious about us. In other words, he says this, daddy's going to miss me. So we're going to need to go on home. We're going to stop the mission of looking for the lost donkeys. We're going to return back to the house so dad doesn't start to worry. He's going to abandon the mission of finding that which is father or which is lost of his fathers. And this is our intro to Saul. Now, the servant who just happened to go with him says, Well, hold on. Before you do that, uh, I've heard of this guy. He's a prophet or a seer. They use the term interchangeably at that time. It explains that to us in the text. He says, I know of this guy. His name is Samuel. He can tell us exactly what we need to know. In fact, he can tell you anything. Let's go see if he's in the next town. So they begin to travel over there. We uh, pick up the story. Well, actually, first Saul says, well, you know, if we're going to go visit a prophet, then we got to give him a gift. And I ran out of supplies. And he says, no, don't worry. The servant says, I've got a shekel of silver we can give him. The servant is much more prepared here than Saul. So then they went up to the hill city and they met some young women, which I'm guessing wasn't very difficult for Saul. And so they show up. And they ask these women, they say, hey, where uh, is the prophet in town? And, and they go, yeah, actually he is. Because um, a, a couple of you know, days before or however long this takes, uh, the people here decided that they needed to do a sacrifice. And in order to do the sacrifice, the prophet has to be in town. And so the prophet is actually in town because this is the day that they've chosen to do the sacrifice. So you're in luck. So run up in town and find them. And so they run around and they get into town and they see this old man and they approach the old man and they say, hey, do you know where the prophet is? And he goes, oh, I'm the prophet. Well, you're the prophet. Yeah. Now, look, let's see what's been happening here. Verse 15. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel. See, uh, God was speaking to Samuel at the same time that he was moving uh, in Saul's life. Now, let's look how God has been moving. He just happened to, you know, be born into a wealthy family. He happened to be born very tall and very good looking. Uh, His father's donkeys happened to get lost on that particular day. They happened to not go into town one, town two, or town three. He happened to bring a servant with him who happened to know who Samuel was, who happened to have a shekel of silver with him, who happened to show up in the right town on the day that Samuel happened to be there. All throughout this story, with the paradoxical King Saul, who's given a bad rap, we see the sovereign hand of God working to set Saul up as king. It's obvious and clear. And not only is he working in his life, he's working somewhere else too. He says, the day before God said to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall make him king. 
God's working over here. God's working over there. This is not unlike how God works today, by the way. That God works providentially in our lives. That he works out uh, arrangements and situations and um, uh, engagements. And I don't just mean married engagements. Some of you are like, amen. Can you work that out for me? Okay, he does do that too, okay? But he works out these types of things in our lives. The question we're going to see with Saul is the same question that we'd have to ask of ourselves. When God is providentially working, do we see it? Do we notice it? There's a lady in our church who told me a story this, this week. God always gives the right stories in the right week. He's, he's, he's good like providence, right? And, uh, he's good at that. And so I'm having this conversation with this lady, and she told me that she, um, of all places, this story starts where all stories should start, in the drive-thru at McDonald's, okay? And so she's in the drive-thru at McDonald's, and there's uh, someone else in a car in front of her. Uh, they're over by the mall, and uh, as they're in the drive-thru line, uh, she said she has her daughter in the car. She's kind of praying, uh, and she just senses, God tells her, talk to that guy in front of you. Okay, y'all have gotten this prompt before at some point in your life, okay? And then you're either like, that wasn't God, that was me, this is weird, whatever. We either talk ourselves out of it or we talk ourselves in it, whatever it might be. Okay, she said, it was so clear, I just knew I had to do it. So I was going to pull up next to him, but once I went to pull up next to him, he pulled out. Okay, so then it was like, well, God, clearly, um, I think as the story goes, she was by the mall because she needed to buy some candlesticks. Okay, can't make this stuff up. And so then it was, what's more important, this guy or the candlesticks? To which then you throw your hands up and you're like, well, God, obviously the guy's more important. But the candlesticks bring light and you're light, so maybe I should go pick up the candlesticks, right? You start having the conversation with yourself on why the candlestick is more important, but she knew it wasn't. So she pulls out, begins to follow the guy, is going to pull up next to him on the light, but then the light changes, so she goes through the light, so she cuts out the traffic, which breaking the laws is okay when you're doing it for God. And so she crosses over, then they get onto the expressway, and she's like, where in the world is this guy going? We started by the mall. Okay, so let me jump to the end of the story, which involves a um, middle-aged suburban white woman and a young African-American who's now in the inner city of Toledo. Okay, here's how the story ends. Lady gets out of her car, approaches the car. The whole time the daughter's saying, mommy, is this safe? She says, lock the doors, but it's okay because God told me to do this, so I think we're okay. But it's okay, right? So then, real ending of the story is her looking at him and saying, God just wanted me to tell you that he loves you. He starts crying, gives her a hug and says, I haven't felt this loved. God providentially works things in our lives. And the question is, do we recognize it? And do we see it? And do we respond to it? And I can tell you, responding to God providentially working in our lives is one of the most fun things about being a Christian. I... Um, have been involved in this uh, business down in Cincinnati. And, and so I've been going down there like once a week. And um, when I get down there, I interact with the employees and, uh, and all of that. And so I've been doing this for about three weeks now. And I was there this last week and Vaughn uh, is one of the employees. And so Vaughn and I have gotten to know each other a little bit over the last couple of weeks. And uh, I showed up down there and uh, we were going to talk about the software system that the company uses because there might need to be a transition. And I'm like, all right, Vaughn, tell me about the software. And he goes, hold on, man, before we do that, he, he was calling me boss, which kind of felt cool until the UPS guy came in and he called him boss too. And I was like, oh, oh well, All right? Um, <laughs> ego shot, right? So then um, I was like, Vaughn, you know, let's talk about this software. He goes, hold on, hold on, boss. Um, he goes, what's up with you? I said, I don't know what that means. Said, what, do you, what do you mean, Vaughn? He goes, no, what's up with you? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, dude, you got some holy vibes. I said, what does that mean? 
He goes, I don't know, but ever since you started coming, you got like some holy vibes and you bring them with you into the gym. I said, well, I'm a pastor. And he goes, well, that must be it. And I said, Vaughn, what do you believe? And he goes, um, I don't know. I just think we should believe in something. I said, no, Vaughn, you should believe in Jesus. That's what you should believe in. That's what we all need to believe in. Then a customer walked in, all right, and we started talking to the customer. Um, but I'm telling you, if God told me to be a part of a business down in Cincinnati because Vaughn needs to know Jesus, then that's cool with me, okay? God works things in our lives through our work, uh, through our trips to McDonald's, okay, through whatever it might be. Will you see it? Will you respond to it? And we're going to pray for those two gentlemen, by the way, at the end of service today because we're going to believe that God wants to bring salvation to them if he hasn't already. Saul, clear hand of God, just as clear as some of these other things we're laying out. Clear hand of God, Saul is working, or God is working in Saul's life, and he's trying to get him to see something. Now, Samuel and Saul have this little conversation. I'm going to summarize it for you. It doesn't read this way in your Bible. Saul shows up. Samuel says, hey. Saul says, what up? Do you know where my donkeys are? Samuel says, I do. Don't worry about the donkeys anymore. That's all going to get taken care of. I got something else for you. Saul says, what else do you have for me? Samuel says, you're going to be king of Israel. Saul probably looked at him and said, I'm just looking for my dad's donkeys. That's not what I signed up for. He says, no, you're going to be king of Israel. Now, Saul is a good Israelite boy. What does he know about Israel? Israel doesn't have a king. Israel's not supposed to have a king. Having a king is bad. And now he's told, you're going to be the king by the clear hand of God, working through all of these circumstances, which means he's going to have a little bit of fear. And Saul does have a little bit of fear. And here's one of these tricky things we see. How do we know when God is breaking the mold in a way that's him or in a way that's us? Because for Saul, he's going to be asked to step into a position that it has been told this isn't supposed to be. So Samuel says, well, let me prove it to you. First off, let's have some dinner. So they have dinner that night, and um, Samuel had told the the chef, hey, when you bring out all the food, um, bring this part for Saul. And what it was is it was actually Samuel's portion, which was the priest or the prophet's portion. And so the priest or the prophet's portion is going to be placed out in front of Saul, which is actually just a foreshadowing of showing how one day in Jesus, the priest, the prophet, and the king would all be wrapped up into one person. But he sits down and he has a meal first. Then after the meal, he, uh, Samuel says, Saul, okay, go get some sleep. Let's talk in the morning about that king thing. So they wake up the next morning. Samuel and Saul, they go out and uh, they have this, Uh, moment where Samuel anoints him as king, makes him king. And Saul is still a little bit hesitant, as he probably should be. And Samuel says this. He says, let me prove it to you. There's going to be a three-act play. And in the three-act play, I'm going to affirm that God is making you king. Here's act number one. Act number one is everything that has been lost, that is your father's, is going to be found. So you're going to show up and the donkeys, they're all going to be found. That's act one. Act two has three scenes. I didn't do plays, so I don't know if this is actually the way it works, but act two has three scenes. Here's act two. Act two is there's going to be a procession, and here's the procession. Goat, bread, wine. Goat, bread, wine. It's all act two. Act three, then, is going to be this. The Holy Spirit is going to fall in a way unlike any other. That's going to be act three. It's got three-act play, and all these things are going to happen, and um, that's going to prove to you that God is actually calling you to be king.
So Saul leaves, shows up, finds the donkeys. Next thing that happens, three people walk by him. One of them has a goat. One of them has some bread. One of them has some wine. Next thing is he keeps walking some more. And uh, there's these prophets that just happen to be walking down the mountain. And they walk down the mountain and the Holy Spirit is present on them. And the Holy Spirit falls on Saul. And Saul starts prophesying in the Holy Spirit. And people go, whoa, 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 where did this come from? Who are you? Holy Spirit falls unlike he has before. Then Saul gets home. He has this conversation with his uncle, of all people. And the uncle goes, hey, how'd it go? And he goes, I found the donkeys. The uncle goes, cool. Anything else? Nope. (laughs) No, that's it. (laughs) Does not mention that he's just been crowned first king of Israel. Or that the prophet had some great predictions. So then what they have to do is they have to actually like formally make him king. And they had a system back then on how they did these types of things. And what they would do is they would cast lots. Uh, and casting lots was just an old system of chance that determined who won at the end and the winner. And they said, this is God's sovereign hand. Now, by the way, before we go into that, let me just say that um, in how we live as Christians now with the Holy Spirit in each of us who are in Christ, we don't have to do this anymore. So it means we don't have to leave our fate up to chance, okay, or the rolling of dice or the casting of lots or anything like that. Okay, now, if you're out there and you're like, oh, well, of course we don't have to do that, um, maybe you do this in a subtle way and you don't have to do this anymore because you have the Holy Spirit. Okay, it means this. If you're a high school senior and you're trying to pick where you go to college, the first advertisement that you see on Facebook doesn't have to be God, okay? That might be Mark Zuckerberg trying to make money. All right? It doesn't have to be you. It means um, that uh, when I was 19 years old and I was trying to decide if I was going into ministry, I said, God, if this song plays, that means you want me to go into ministry. Well, I cheated. I was listening to Caleb. They only play six songs, and of course it was going to be one of them, right? Like, that's not, that's not God, okay? Like, like we, we, don't play this, we don't have to play this game or these games. In, no, that's how they did this back then. Tangent over, okay? Said another way. Hold on, tangent not over. Said another way. Instead of praying for God for some kind of billboard or sign or something like that, just spend time getting to know God. And, and then you'll know. You'll know then. Okay? Okay, tangent over. So they cast lots, right? So they're casting lots and they're figuring it out and they get to the very end, right? And I don't know if it was like there's two people left or however it was, and they get to the very end and they're gonna say, Saul is king. Where's Saul? And everyone's looking around. They got all of this particular tribe all lined up and everybody's there and Saul won. And Saul is nowhere to be found. It literally says in the Bible, he's over there hiding in the baggage. So now you have um, the tallest dude in Israel trying to hide behind the baggage. Okay? God has providentially, absolutely, unequivocally made it clear that Saul is supposed to be king. And he's hiding in the baggage. No, this is not the point of today's sermon, but it's a question to stop and ask. And that is when God clearly works things out in our lives, do we step into them? See, there's a subtle form of pride here. Here's the subtle form of pride. That Saul's own fear, limitations, or desire trumps God's clear move in his life. 
And there are times, I think, when we either by our own um, perceived inadequacies or whatever it might be, even when God has clearly ordained or set something up, say, no, 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 I don't want anything to do with that. Or we use this like, no, I'm not good enough for that when God has clearly made it to be. Will you step into it? Saul eventually does step into it after hiding in the package. Then what happens is, um, in the story, it says that God moved some people to come around him and to, uh, to join him so he didn't have to do this alone. Because another thing I can speak from experience, and I think many of you can do this as well, if God does call you to do something and it's not something that you're supposed to do alone, then God will send exactly the right people at the right time. And I've said this before, uh, even in our two-year history or so as a church, uh, that we can look out and I could point out by name people that God sent at exactly the right time. Now, at the same time, it also says that opposition came up because that'll happen too. Opposition will rise up. And so now Saul has some men on his side. He has some opposition. He's been crowned king. He stepped out of the baggage. And now it's time to be king. And so the first thing that happens when Saul is king is he hears a story, a story of this group of people, 7,000 or so, uh, from a place called Jabesh Gilead, right outside of Israel. And the Ammonites have opposed them and are going to kill them. And the Ammonite king comes up to the Jabesh Gileadites and says to them, um, you've got two options. Option number one, I'm going to kill you. Option number two, you're going to be my slaves, and I'm going to blind you, and you'll be my slaves for the rest of your lives. Those are your two options. So those are their options. Not great. No, they choose the second option. <laughs> like, that sounds better than dying. Okay, so we'll go with the blindness and the slavery. But they apparently had one good negotiator. But if, if, it's just, just if, if we can find somebody who will come rescue us, then we don't want to take the deal we want to fight. If we can find somebody. And the Ammonite king must have looked in and thought, who would help these worthless people that are on the outs? Who would, who would, who would possibly step in for them? So he said, I'll give you seven days, which is the Hebrew number of completion, to find somebody who would step in for, for you guys and to fight this battle. Now, here's what the king of the Ammonites didn't know. He didn't know that 30 years or so ago that this man uh, had had a, this powerful, wealthy uh, man would have a son, a son who would end up being the best-looking dude in the whole bunch. He didn't know uh, that a few days before this that that wealthy man's donkeys would get lost and said handsome son would go searching for the donkeys and that the donkeys, however God speaks to donkeys, uh, wouldn't land at this place or this place or this place, but would happen to show up at this place and that there would be a servant who would travel with said son who would know about a prophet who could help them. He didn't know that, the Ammonite king. So he didn't know then that Saul would um, come into town when the prophet was there because these people had happened to have decided that this was the day that they should do the sacrifice and so Samuel would be in town and they would have an interaction. And he didn't know that God would speak to the prophet and tell the prophet, tomorrow you're going to meet a guy and you're going to know who he is because everyone knows who he is once you see him and he's going to be your king. He didn't know that. And he didn't know then that exactly at the right time, by faith and God's sovereign hand through lots, that Saul would be the one who would be chosen king. He didn't know that. And he didn't know that this paradoxical, 
character, uh, Saul, who we see hiding in the baggage and we see some weakness um, all of a sudden, because in verse 8, it says the spirit of God rushed, uh, 6, I mean, and the spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, these words about how the Jabesh Gileadans, these forgotten people were going to be um, uh, enslaved and blinded, uh, and how his anger was greatly kindled. And so here's what Saul does when he hears about this. He takes an ox and he cuts up the ox. He sends it out to all of Israel, and he says, those who will not defend these people, may you be like the ox. And so they say, okay, maybe we should take this guy seriously. And so they rally around him, and may it not be lost that the first act of the king of Israel is to restore sight to those who would be blind and to set some captives free. What would happen next is they would win, and they do win. Saul uses brilliant military strategy. Just because God told you to do something doesn't mean you get to check your brain at the door, right? So he uses great military strategy. He wins the battle. When he wins the battle, those who were on his side said, this is awesome, you're king, this is great. Why don't we go kill those people, those Israelites who opposed you? And Saul says, no, I'll go ahead and show them mercy. Saul, the guy who gets the bad rap, shows him mercy and invites him into the kingdom. And this is how Saul becomes king. Oh, and it's a good story. He falls, falls hard. Sin will do that to you. But this was his rise. Saul was a temporary king that would later be given away to a better king, a greater king, David. And there's a lot to see in this story. There really is. And we should recognize God's sovereign hand in our lives. And we should realize that when God sets something up for us to step into, not to hide in the baggage, but to step out into it, we should see that. We should see that sometimes God uses Holy Spirit-empowered, God-ordained emotion to get us to move. And that's not a bad thing. We should see that. And I hope you do. But you should see something more, too. You should see that the paradoxical king, who was a temporary king, represents something. He represents something that was of, of, of um, a, a, a human stature. He represents something that was temporary. Something that would do a good thing and would give it its best shot but would fail in the end. He represents something that would give way to something greater. And what we should see in this story is that the first king of Israel points us to a better first king of Israel, a greater first king of Israel. A king of Israel who uh, uh, sometime later, I mean hundreds of years later, uh, uh, would be born. And this time it would not be uh, born to a rich, powerful man, but uh, for many purposes, uh, uh, a poor, helpless woman who would be given a task just as crazy as you're going to be the first king of Israel. Um, She would be given uh, the task uh, of you're going to have a child out of wedlock um, as a virgin. But this one, instead of hiding behind the luggage, steps out in faith that God has called her to do it. So she does, and she births our king, Jesus. Our king Jesus, that is what? That is sent on a mission by his father 
sent on a mission to go find all that has been lost, not donkey, but sheep. Saul, the first king of Israel, said, uh, maybe I need to abandon my father's mission because he might get worried about me. The greater king of Israel goes down and he stays on mission, even though it cost him everything. And the greater king of Israel, his kingship is affirmed. You know how it's affirmed? Through three acts. You know what act number one is? John 17, everything that has been lost of yours has been found. Every sheep, and I won't lose one. Act one. Then there's act two. Act two comes out in three scenes, affirming that Jesus is the true king of Israel. And you know what it is? A sheep, a bread, and some wine. But this time, this time, it's not that the sheep and the bread and the wine pass by the king in the better story. He becomes the sheep, he becomes the bread, and he becomes the wine. He becomes the sacrificial lamb. He becomes the bread of life. He becomes the wine or the blood that is spilled for our salvation, proving his king. And act three is after he's done, the Holy Spirit falls in a way unlike ever before on Pentecost. Three acts, proving his kingship that he is the greater king of Israel. Saul's first act as king is to set the captive free and to save blindness from a forgotten group of people that the enemy thought nobody would love. And if you've been wondering the whole time, where am I in the story? Let me tell you where you're at. You're on the outside of Israel looking in and wondering, Is there anyone in Israel who will save us? Is there anyone in Israel who will save me? And exactly at the right time, what our enemy didn't know is that God would send a king and providentially would line it up so at exactly the right time, our king would show up and he would face our enemy and he would save us from blindness and set us free. That is the greater king. That's your king. It's your king. Do you see him as king? You know what the the Israelites do? And you know what the Jabesh Gileadans do after? They elevate Saul. They say, you're king, you're king. They sing his praises. It's telling us what we ought to do when we see our king. We should sing his praises. We should worship him. We should obey him. We should bow down before him for being our king, for rescuing us from blindness, setting the captive free. Before I close in prayer, let me ask you, everyone, this question. Have you seen Jesus as your king? Have you realized that when you were on the outside, that he brought you into his kingdom, that he rescued you from sin and death from the enemy who wanted to destroy you, end you, enslave you, blind you to life that is truly life. Have you seen him as king? If not, bow to him. Bow your heart to him. 
bow your life to him. Thank him for being king. I hope you'll pray that prayer. I hope you'll make that your heart. I'm going to close in prayer. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for these two men through these two stories that I've shared today. And for the rest of us, I'm going to pray that we would properly place Jesus as our king and that we would respond when he works through our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray first for anyone in here who hasn't bowed to you as king, that they would right now. Acknowledging, acknowledging that they were on the outside of Israel like these people. That sin puts us all there. Mm, but you, you bring us back in through your kingdom. If you've never embraced Christ as king, do so now. God, I pray for these other two men that we've mentioned today through story. I pray that their hearts would be open to you as king. Father, I pray you would use us, use us to bring other people into your kingdom. So give us eyes to see, ears to hear, when you move, whisper, speak to us. Help us to see how you're working. Give us the courage to be a part of it. Jesus, thank you for being our greater king. Amen. We hope you were inspired, challenged, and learned something new. For more information about our church, visit our website at redemptioncitychurch.tv. Have a great week.